Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 228 for December 24th, 2009. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 82. Security Now is brought to you by the new voice-activated sync, featuring hands-free calling, music search, and turn-by-turn navigation, available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. For more details, visit SyncMyRidePodcast.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers everything having to do with your security, your privacy, your safety online. And here he is, the secure, private, safe, Steve Gibson. Hello, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Leo. How are you today? You again. I'm great. Our holiday edition. Yes, and, you know, based on the weather on the East Coast, I'm glad we're both on the West Coast. No kidding. No kidding. It's Christmas Eve, and uh, you are visiting your mother. Yep. Well, the whole family. My, I'm. I grew up in Northern California, and wandered down here, uh, following my strange career path. And uh, you know, mom used to, you know, back then we didn't have the internet, so she we talk on the phone. She'd say, "Honey, when are you going to come home?" <laughs> and I said, "Mom, you know, this is just the right distance." <laughs> so I, I know. <laughs> if the faucet's leaking uh, i'm sorry i can't help you with that washer you know go go get my brother-in-law he'll grumble a lot but do it and I'm, uh i'm safe on that count because uh mom lived in santa cruz and then moved to rhode island and i stayed here so she moved away from me but she lives two blocks from my sister so yeah and i I like it that it's just a short little hop up the freeway. I mean, hop the freeway. Up the, uh, just a short little hop right, up the right. um, uh, by, by plane. It's like an hour. And so it, it's close enough that it's easy and not a problem. So, yeah, it works just great. Well, we are gathered today to answer listener feedback. This is our 82nd listener feedback episode. Yep. We're back on the even number, the Mod 2 uh, episodes for our Q&A. Uh, and I bet you we have some questions about uh, last week's uh, episode on cyber warfare. I'm sure We've we'll got have. some interesting things there. Of course, the one one person gave me the perfect opening to talk about this ridiculous, uh, the the unmanned uh, predator unencrypted video mistake oh that the Defense Department made. So we'll talk about that. Lots of interesting security news, and uh, and I managed, believe it or not, I still managed to somehow uh, find. A spinright testimonial unlike any others. <laughs> you so think we'd heard them, heard them all. You would have thought we would have done them all, but we've got a new one. So, yep. Well, let's start with uh, any any security news or errata we want to correct. Yep. Well, once again, Adobe is in the doghouse. Um, there is a, a publicly exploited, c- confirmed by Adobe critical remote code execution again. vulnerability again in reader and acrobat any versions current and prior so right now they're at 9.2 of both adobe reader and adobe acrobat and those and everything before are vulnerable 
It's the, the, the nature of the problem is a so-called use-after-free error. Um, we've sort of talked about that. The idea is that many systems dynamically allocate memory as needed. So the, the code will be going along somewhere and a packet will come in and the program doesn't have any place to put it. So, so the program asks the operating system. This is one of the functions of an operating system is to provide memory on demand when asked for by code. So the code will say, hey, give me a chunk of memory. And the OS will say, okay, here's a pointer to the chunk of the size you asked for. The program will then do whatever it does with it and use it for a while and then free it. It'll, the idea is that it dynamically asks for it as, it as it needs it, and when it's through with it, it releases it. And long-time listeners of, long-time listeners, well, long-time users will remember the old days of Windows where there were things called memory leaks, where, remember, you'd like yeah. use Windows for like a few hours and you'd run out of memory. Right. There, there was like it would crash. Well, what those old-style memory leaks actually were, where they were programs that forgot to release the memory that they had asked for. And so a program would just keep asking for memory, right. intending to let it go, to give it back to the operating system so that it could be reused, but there was a bug in the program, and it would so-called leak memory, meaning that it ended up just consuming it, but never releasing it. So... In this and in case, most cases, modern memory managers and garbage collection and programming languages have taken care of that. Well, yes, although in some ways that, that don't require the programmer to behave themselves. Right. Lazy, for example, pro encouraging lazy programming. Yeah. Right. For example, um, what will happen in as soon as we moved from the 16-bit world, Windows 3.1 and 95, 98 and, and ME, there, we, there was a chance to change the paradigm and and with starting with Windows NT, when a program terminated, the OS had the ability to robustly release any unreleased memory. So, so frankly, the problem went away not because all the programmers really got good about behaving themselves, but because the operating system started taking responsibility for their misbehavior. An example where you can't do that is a server app. You know, like all of the code that I write, I don't, I haven't rebooted my server in years. Right. No memory and leaks there. No memory leaks. And I mean, uh, there have been problems where, in fact, there was one uh, a few months ago uh, toward the end of the work on the, on the spoofability test. It turns out that I was creating threads and there were some thread handles that I was not freeing. And so over the course of weeks, I would see the server's consumption slowly drifting upwards. It's like, you know, I can't live with that. So I just put some time aside and reread my code. And I said, yeah, you know, I don't think I'm releasing the handle of those threads. And sure enough, added that one little line and then the problem went away. And I'm back to absolutely robust long-term operation with no with no memory leak. So so what happens is that the if programmers are not very careful it's possible to reuse a pointer to memory 
which has been freed. And that's the so-called use after free error. In this case, in the, in the Adobe products, there's a, a, a method in the code called new player. And um, there's a, an object called the doc media object. And by exploiting the way it works, it's possible to allocate memory, put what you want in memory. That is for the attacker to load their code in there. But due to the nature of the way it's set up, you're not supposed to be able to execute the code. And in fact, you can't. But if you release it to the operating system saying, okay, I no longer need this, and then use the pointer, you're able to access the code, which you would otherwise be prevented from accessing. So, you know, it's, you know, it's a, it's a mistake which Adobe made. And I, as I was looking at the details of this and the fact that we're, we talk about a, a Acrobat or Adobe problems pretty much every single week now. I'm wondering what's, you know, what's this escalation? And I think it must be that hackers have realized there is a body, a large body, uh, and if you've installed Reader lately, you know how large the body is of code, which wasn't very well written. I mean, so they sort of painted a target on themselves. You know, for a long time, they got away while everyone was aiming at Microsoft and calling Microsoft the big bad, you know, security vulnerability. Um, Adobe was busily, you know, adding features and bloating up their software, not paying attention to security. And so here now they've got they've got code that 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 they're late in the game in in raising this the security bar on and the attackers have said let's take a look at this adobe stuff everybody else is finding problems maybe we can and you know yeah. <laughs> wherever yeah. you look like there's a problem it's a fertile field isn't it exactly that yes um speaking of which mozilla is uh back in the game in this case though they do have a patch. Oh, I forgot to mention that Adobe has indicated that they're going to fix this um, with their with their planned January twelfth update. And I'm not kidding. Their advice is disable JavaScript <laughs> as usual, now, as always, as we've heard before. Yeah. However, we this is not the first time our listeners have been advised to disable JavaScript in Acrobat Reader. And in fact, um, you know, so it's very likely that it may still be disabled from the last time we told people to disable it. If not, you know, the, f- the fact is JavaScript in a PDF reader really seems crazy to me. I mean, I recognize yeah. that, yes, you could, you know, script your documents and make them do fancy things, but... I don't know anybody who does. So here you've got this dangerous feature turned on, which allows the exploitation of this that you almost certainly don't need. So um, it's very easy to disable JavaScript. Mine's turned off on all of my installs. That's just something that I do as part of setting up a new system. And, and I would imagine our listeners who have done this in the past still have it disabled so they're not in trouble. Um, so it's enabled by default, but once you disable it, it will continue to stay disabled in upgrades. Correct. Okay. And um, I'm trying to think now, when I was doing the research for this, there there was a comic strip 
on a major newspaper site was being served from a third party, and I can't remember. It's like King Comics or King something. Um, anyway, the point is that users started complaining that their computers were um, getting infected from looking at these comics. And it turns out it was this this vulnerability, this Acrobat reader vulnerability was being exploited. The SQL injection exploit was used on this third-party comic uh-huh. provisioning server to install this malicious Acrobat content, the, the, this malicious PDF content, which was then being served to the the unwitting newspaper as, you know, content from a third party and was exploiting this to take over people's machines and install malicious code. So as is often the case, you've got these blended uh, threats. Yes. Where they take advantage of one flaw, this SQL injection exploit to take advantage of another flaw. Right. So on the, on the uh, Firefox and sea monkey front, um, everyone who's been keeping themselves current will have probably have noticed that their 3.5 uh, progression of Firefoxes recently went to 3.5.6. And anybody who was still at 3.0 went to 3.0.16. And SeaMonkey has also moved to 2.0.1. There were seven sets of problems fixed um, a bunch of things, multiple errors in JavaScript and the browser engine, which can cause memory corruption and potentially remote code exploits. A bunch of stuff with the media library, the LibAug Play and the Theora libraries for, for audio and video. Both have um, memory corruption and integer overflow problems. There was they They found out that there was a way that the location bar, the URL location bar, could be spoofed. Um, and in fact, the vulnerabilities were being reported, which would allow a hacker to, to place an invalid URL up in the location bar so it would look like a legitimate site to uh, obviously allow for phishing and spoofing attacks of different kinds. Um, there was a privilege escalation vulnerability, uh, a problem with uh, NTLM reflection, um, and then some scripting problems, Gecko, ActiveX, object exception messages and things. All of that's been fixed, but a bunch of stuff. So, and because, of course, this is open source, the uh, full exploit details are available through analysis of the source. So anyone learning about these problems can, can say, oh, then I'm going to go figure out how to exploit these because they've got access to the source code just as the Mozilla team do. And so this is one of those situations where, you know, you want to get yourself made current because um, we keep seeing instances where people are being, and we'll be talking about one next here, where people are still being infected by things that have been fixed. And Mozilla says... <laughs> if users are unable to install the updated yeah, media, yeah, here it goes. They should disable JavaScript <laughs> in Firefox until they're able to install the newest version of the browser. Now you're just looking for those now. Uh, I just I Google that expression. Google <laughs> those phrases. That's how I find my security JavaScript. news every week. <laughs> 
Um, but importantly, I did want to mention that here we are on the eve of a new year at which Mozilla has said they are going to stop moving the version 3.0 Firefox forward. So this is time probably. Now, if something really horrible surfaces that was in 3.0.17, which I guess is what we're about to get from them, um, one wonders if they wouldn't fix that still. But I did for our listeners, it's probably time to move from 3.0 to 3.5 and be- continue following that into 2010 because that's they're saying they're going to suspend support for that. And, you know, you can really understand why they would have to. Clearly, there's a, a huge common code base. The fact that, you know, they're always having to rev both together mean that all the same problems are in both sets of code. But it's just a huge amount of extra effort for them to continue creating 3.0 versions. And, you know, 3.5 has been around long enough, as you pointed out to me when I was reluctant to move. <laughs> um, Elaine, our illustrious transcriber, however, reported that she went to 3.56 and something bad happened. Like she lost all browser functionality and was having to fall back onto IE. I haven't heard any other problems with it and and i'm current across the board as, i have my yeah five so whatever it is it doesn't seem to be a widespread problem but i haven't heard from her since last week when she said you know ouch she got bit by by upgrading i i, I, I get these questions on the radio show all the time and you know one thing i say is anytime you install anything there's always the risk that the installation can go bad and something gets screwed up and you're going to have a problem. It doesn't mean there's necessarily something wrong with the program, but well, Leo, some percentage of people that happens. No two PCs in the galaxy right. Right. are the same. Right. It's just amazing this stuff works at all. I know. I, I, mean, it's just, <laughs> I say no, that every show. <laughs> I've got all these computers. There's no two of them that are right. in the, the, the same. They've got different chipsets. They've got different right. hardware. They're different ages. They've got different histories. You know, and they're somehow managing to mostly stay alive. We had a, a call a on, on a Sunday or something from a guy who went to Vista Service Pack 2 and he just black screened his computer, just rebooted and won't start. And I said, well, you know, there are millions of people who have installed Vista Service Pack 2 without it. So it's something about the way your system was that was unique. And there's no knowing what it is. You can't predict it. It's no. Just- no. <laughs> and, you know, I was thinking about we were talking a week or two ago about you know, the days of DOS where you'd, you know, install DOS, which meant three files. Right. And, you know, and, <laughs> right. Well, you'd add a memory manager. Ooh. And it had, a, it, it had a config file. Okay, I know all that is so far. Now it's just, you know. But at least then when, some, <laughs> when it went so wrong, you kind of, you know, you kind of knew what was going on. Now there's so many things going on in the background, so many processes, so many applications installed. And just look, you know, launch your, your, uh, your uh, task manager. There's no. Don't do it. No. <laughs> There's dozens and dozens of things going on. No, and I will say um, being really uh, being really particular about what's running can bite you sometimes. Because one of the things that I'll often do is I will launch Task Manager and look at the, the thing just scroll. And I'll think, okay, I got to do something about this. So I'll go in and go through a big bunch of weeding out process, or I'll go over to the to the Windows Services panel and selectively turn off things that I just don't need. And, you know, one of my favorites is to turn off DHCP because all of my IPs and my network are statically assigned. Hmm. And then 
what'll happen is I'll I'll take a machine somewhere else and forget that I disabled the DHCP service because right. you know I didn't need it and I didn't want it running. And it's like, oh, why can't I get an IP address? Oh, I know why. You no. know, but it's, it's always, you know, it, there, there's a few cycles that are lost in uh, in re- remembering what it is that I did. So it's sort of a mixed blessing. We just sort of all limp along. It's just the way it is. There's nothing we can do about it unless you want to go back to DOS. Speaking of limping along. Yes. The Conficker Worm reports, we're alive and doing well. Thanks for asking. <laughs> I'm glad. It, I'm glad it's a uh, what? Many of our listeners have asked, hey, whatever happened with Conficker? Well, it just reared its ugly head oh or heads again. It took down recently an entire seven hospital maternity and continuing care medical network in New Zealand. Oh. All 3,000 of the PCs within their network had to be turned off. Oh. And the hospital's lab... The main hospital's lab is currently running at about 10% capacity, and the hospital is only accepting patients in need of urgent care. I should say hospitals, because apparently it's a seven-hospital network plus some other ancillary labs and and, and outpatient clinics. And it it ripped through their entire network and brought them down. Um, There are reports vary, but there are somewhere between 5 and 15 million PCs infected worldwide. And the, the the number ranges that large because finding them and counting them is not easy. Um, but there's an interesting site that I've never talked about, uh, shadowserver.org, www.shadowserver, S-H-A-D-O-W-S-E-R-V-E-R.org, which tracks botnets and denial service attacks and other things uh, really interesting if you look just down the left hand column of of the pages on the site for example if you, there's like a botnet map that you can click on and they're showing you know in real time the the size and location of botnets and they also have charts over days weeks months and years where you can see you know the with some level of accurate reporting um, where these things are, where the botnets are, where the infected um, uh, computers are. Um, You're able to break it down. They've got charts and tables. You can break it down by country. Um, It's believed that the largest infections of Conficker, which, as I said, is alive and doing well, uh, are in Asia, all throughout Asia, where between 10 and 27% of individual ISPs' total routable internet address space is infected. Wow. 10 to 27%. Now, what's interesting is, and, th- and this comes back to what we were talking about, about you know late patching, <laughs> is that Conficker spreads using... An, an RPC, a remote procedure call vulnerability in the Windows server service that was fixed exactly 14 months ago on October 23rd of 2008. Here we are on about, an, about on December 23rd of 2009, 14 months later, and 
Configure is spreading using something that Microsoft fixed 14 months ago. And it is now called by the security community, without question, the most prolific worm that has ever existed. Wow. Now, in looking back, I got a big kick out of the wording that Microsoft uses to describe the vulnerability. Microsoft's text reads, This security update resolves a privately reported vulnerability in the server service. The vulnerability could allow Hmm. remote code execution if an affected system received a specially crafted RPC request. On Microsoft Windows 2000, Windows XP, and Windows Server 2003 systems, an attacker could exploit this vulnerability without authentication to run arbitrary code. It is possible that this vulnerability could be used in the the crafting of a wormable exploit. (laughs) Gee, that could happen. I'm just looking at the uh, shadowserver.org stats for configure population. Ah. Going straight up, (laughs) going straight up, it's uh, actually hit uh, 7 million unique IPs in November. I mean, yeah, could possibly. Might, just might. Might, you might have a worm. Might have a worm. Come out of this. Could be. It it could be bad. We would recommend that you patch this. (laughs) Could be. And then they say firewall best practices and standard default firewall configurations can help protect network resources from attacks that originate outside the enterprise perimeter. Well, okay, that's standard boilerplate that all of their messages have on it. And in fact, that doesn't work in the case of Conficker because... What, what 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 we see happening over and over and over. I mean, this is remember, remember a whole bunch of UK hospitals were taken down. I don't know what it is about Conficker and hospitals, but um, yeah, it, we gave them a hard time because we said, why, why, why would a hospital have its important computing systems on the public internet? Well, yes, and in fact, remember that in one case it was it was the equipment running the 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 operating theater yeah, was online. Which, you know, was was having these problems in this so, case the new zealand case that was when they were updating so they probably weren't online until they said okay now everybody go online and get system updates which is just uh, boneheaded well it it's hard to say what's going on there in 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 a, in a report from their from the from the government site which talks about this somewhat um tail between their legs yeah they say that that their best guess is that an employee brought an infected uh, machine okay. into the network. And that was my point about firewall configurations right. not helping because it's Conficker Spriggs sp- spreads within a local area network where you don't have firewall defenses. So, yes, you can have a strong perimeter that's protecting you from the public, but anything that that pierces that, whether it's a USB thumb drive or a laptop that, that's brought inside, anything, any way for it to get in, and then it just has a field day. And w- as we see, it just rapidly infects all the machines. Now, what's what's here's what's difficult to understand is how could, first of all, we don't know how long the infection's been in place. So it might be that Conficker has been in this network, but just wasn't noticed until recently. And in fact, in terms of remediation of Conficker, it's 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 actually causing a problem that Conficker is not more damaging because because 
the fact that it just exists to exist, and we've talked about that too, you know, it's typical of viruses and worms that are still sort of at the proof of concept stage for whatever reason. The fact that it's not really doing bad things means that there's sort of, it's difficult to commit heavy duty resources and time to, to cleaning it out of networks where, you know, where it's just not that big a problem for a lot of ISPs. It's like, oh, yeah, well, so our users are infected, you know, good luck to them. They're yeah. still paying their bills. Yeah. Amazing. Anyway, shadowserver.org is a neat, neat place to, yeah. to poke around for anybody who is curious about uh, all that. And I got a note from Peter Lilly. Um, it says, hi, Steve and the GRC gang. And the subject was yawn. And uh, yawn in all capitals with asterisks bracketing it. A spinrite miracle so typical you'll think it's boring. <laughs> and so he said, hi, Steve and GRC gang. I've been listening to the podcast for four plus years. So I must have heard around 200 stories of Spinrite's miracles. Today, my sister called me in a panic as her old laptop would not boot. Blue screening on every boot with NTFS.sys errors. Of course, there was no recent backup as there was, quote, nothing important, unquote, on the laptop. (laughs) Oh, yeah, except... The hundreds of photos documenting the lives of her twin five-year-old daughters. While she sounded more than a little panicked at the idea of losing all her photos, I have to say I felt a serene calm (laughs) as I reached for my Spinrite CD, feeling like I'd lived through this story myself before... Just a few times. <laughs> so I popped in the disc and ran level two. Boring. Spinrite found problems. Of course. Obviously. And recovered the data. Naturally. <laughs> the machine loaded. Windows successfully on the next boot. Yeah, yeah. Like, was there any doubt? Steve, of course I'm joking, and I think this is marvelous. You must swell with pride every time you hear yet another story that data-recovered miracles are so commonplace. Thanks for a fantastic product. There you go. And no, I, don't, I don't think there's anything commonplace about it. And thank you, Peter, for a, a terrific uh, piece of email. <laughs> it's just another day in the office. Eh, well, it's been right. Yeah, that's what we do here. We have 10 great questions from our uh, great audience and uh, that Steve We got compiled. good ones, yes. Reminder, if you want to ask a question, the best way to do that is to go to grc.com slash feedback and ask that question. And Steve will, uh, Steve likes to research his answers and come, come up with the right answer. So uh, the best way to do that is uh, just to go to grc.com slash feedback. Now, I do want to mention very quickly the great Ford Sync. There's some word leaking out that Ford's got some big announcements about Sync at CES. I don't know what those announcements are, but the, the leaks are very interesting on Engadget and others. Sync is... I, and I'll tell you one thing I know for sure. Ford is very committed to making Sync an open platform with apps and to and to really give it some real juice. This is a computer in your car. Right now, what Sync is, is, of course, it's, it handles the Bluetooth interface to your phone. And you can have a bunch of different phones. I, I get in the car. I have three different phones. One's the primary. 
but you can listen to music from the Bluetooth. It supports A2DP. You can, of course, it has a USB port, so you can plug in anything with a USB port, including a thumb drive with MP3s on it, or even a, if you want to really go crazy, a USB a hard drive, a self-powered hard drive with uh, songs on it. So you get, th- I mean, you get thousands and thousands of songs in there. It indexes the drive, knows what's on it, and then you can call for any song by name. You can say play similar tracks, play next tracks. You get weather reports, you get ski conditions, all with your voice. The whole idea of this is it's not on the screen, it's talking to you. It's like HAL 9000 in your car. You, you press a button on the steering wheel, you tell it what you want, Sync talks back to you. You never take your highs off the road or your hands off the wheel. So it's safe. 911 assist, by the way. So if airbags are deployed, it calls 911 for you on your phone. Feeds the 911 operator your GPS coordinates. Sync has GPS built in. And then gives you a chance. It plays a recorded message and then gives you a chance, if you're conscious, to, to, say, to say what's going on. I love that feature. I hope I never have to use it, but I love knowing it's there. Vehicle health reports, too. Every 5,000 miles. I said it this. Every 5,000 miles, it tells me everything about the condition of my car. So I can bring that in when I bring it into the repair shop and say, here's what I know. You know, you basically have access to the car's computer. It, it goes on and on and on. Ford Sync is just an amazing technology. I want you to take a look at it. Uh, now, there's a couple of ways you could do this. You could go to the website, SyncMyRidePodcast.com. And there's, there's videos there. It'll take you to the main sync site, tell you all about it. But you can also uh, visit your local Ford, Lincoln, or Mercury dealer and say, I'd like to test drive Ford Sync. It is incredible. We thank them for supporting the show. And I really thank Ford for uh, taking the tack it's taking with Sync. And you'll see with these big announcements in just a couple of weeks, they plan to make this something really special in your car. It already is. Ford Sync, SyncMyRidePodcast.com. Are you ready, Mr. Gibson? Let's do it. All right. Question one from Tom Newman in Discovery Bay, which is uh, up here in San Francisco Bay Area. How the bad guys keep one step ahead when it comes to malware. Kind of topical for our configure discussion. Hi, Stephen Leo. I heard Steve mention a number of times about what Google and other sites are doing to detect and flag websites that can harm your computer with malware. You mentioned a link from a listener that pointed to Google's safe browsing site that flags bad websites. This past month, I've received three messages through Skype saying that my Windows through Skype. Well, there's a little, that's something a little suspicious right there. <laughs> saying that my, I don't think Skype is warning you about things. That my Windows software was infected. I needed to download a software patch to fix the problem. The messages pop up on my screen with software update as the title. All three times I was running on my Mac. <laughs> so we knew it was bogus. Each time I blocked the sender, but I still received more of these messages. I did a Google search of the linked websites, the one with the quote, patch software, and Google didn't show anything wrong with the site. However, when I did a who is of the site, it showed me that they were created within one day of when I received the warning message. Of course, it's a cat and mouse game. The website in each message was different by one or two ending letters, and the Skype sender was also different each time. By the way, that's a good way to detect a malicious site is it's kind of a random URL, right? Because they're constantly changing these. The yeah, wording well, like, like 318 x.com yeah, that yeah, we talked about last exactly. week like, okay yeah and then there'll be a 319 and a 319z mm-hmm. and the wording of the messages indicated they were all sent by the messages indicated person the who has records indicated these sites were owned by someone in the czech republic so my point is you can't rely on google or anyone else to keep you safe when it comes to malware the bad guys are always going to be one step ahead by changing website urls email addresses etc so you really do need to be careful and practice safe browsing 
He's written up a, a blog uh, article about this with a screenshot of the warning message on Geek News Central. And I'll, by the way, this site is owned by Todd Cochran, who does the podcast awards. Thank you, Todd. Congratulations on your podcast award, Best Technology Podcast, Steve Gibson. And thanks for the great work you do. That's Tom Newman, who does the Frog View, I'm sorry, Fog View <laughs> podcast from Discovery Bay, California. His website is fogview.com. And I will put, and I'm sure you will too, a link to uh, the uh, blog posting uh, in our show notes. Yeah, I, I, anyway, I thought that Tom's point was, you know, very well taken um, and, and a good one. It's, it reminded me, though, of sort of what we understand already about antivirus software. That is, you know, there's, there's, it's, as you mentioned, it's a cat and mouse game. Um, you can't, rel- you can't be guaranteed that Google is going to flag bad things in the same way that you can't be guaranteed that your AV uh, system is going to know about emerging threats that that haven't been added to it yet. Just as Google can't know about a website whose domain was domain was registered the day before, that there are probably no inbound links to. So Google's bots aren't following along, you know. And it's still that in both cases, that doesn't mean in the case of AV or Google's. Um, uh, protection approach it doesn't mean that they're useless because many bad sites do persist for a long time just as many viruses and malware do persist for a long time and you know there is google and you know we talked about web of trust reporting problems and certainly the av manufacturers are constantly fielding new instances of these bad things updating their signatures as quickly as they can and really trying to stay ahead of it certainly we know that a lot of effective blocking is done so all of this is very good it's just that you know, security is a moving target and software is porous. And so, you know, we, uh, while Tom is right, I would say all of this is good and certainly better than not having it at all. But certainly he's also right in saying we need to practice safe browsing and, you know, all the lessons that we've learned, like not clicking on links in unsolicited email and also not believing that you need to Fix your Windows software when you're running on a Mac. Is uh, <laughs> and when you get the message from <laughs> Skype. Um, no, in fact, I say this on the radio show again to quote the radio show uh, all the time, which is uh, you can have antivirus software and any spyware software. It's a good thing to have it, but it's but it's secondary line of defense. You are the first line of defense in your behaviors. Yep, and clearly the fact that that Skype is being used as the, as the delivery mechanism is meant to catch out. Right, less sophisticated users they probably don't even know they have Skype running. <laughs> exactly, or you know, I mean, again, many many non computer savvy people are going to see a Windows update box right. pop up right. and believe it, and because I mean, because Windows also pops up valid boxes saying similar things. Right. So I mean, there it's sort of a social engineering hack, you know, coming through a bizarre channel, i.e., Skype, but. Certainly, some percentage of users are going to say, "Oh, wow, I, you know, I guess I have a problem." How you know, click here to fix. Right. So it'll it'll catch people. None of our listeners, but 
but others. Not just Skype. I mean, all IM clients are used this way. Every time I log into hot, you know, MSN, I get you know thirty of these. Yep. And I get a lot of messages saying um, from Pretty Girl Thirteen saying, Ah, yeah, I'm all alone. <laughs> <laughs> and usually, by the way, those are not what you think they are. They're not a come on to join some adult site. They're really a link to a page that is malicious. Yes. Yes, you know, they, they want just you to go want to that you to page. click. Just click this one link, right. just this one time. Right. That's all we need. So, so don't you know? Don't say, "Oh, I'm 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 immune to this. Let me just check this out." It's ha ha. No, no, no. It has nothing to do with Pretty Girl Thirteen. Uh, here's a question. That's that's a, that's a whole category of itself. I read that this is broken. <laughs> What's the story? Rob near Ottawa, Canada wonders how long does it take to crack SSL. Stephen Leo, I read an article in uh, on Mark Law's uh, Mark Taw's uh, blog M A R K T A W, uh, and I'll put a link again in the show notes. It's a long link. I don't know if this post is accurate or just fud. The article claims that in 1995, SSL was brute force cracked at 32 hours. Now, with today's computers, it could be cracked in a matter of minutes. Is that true? Is it was it true? Is it true today? Could you explain this? Help. Well, that's it. it was it's an interesting blog posting because. It talks about how SSL was cracked in a very short time, fifteen years ago. Yeah, and and we've talked about the SSL protocol. When I looked closely at the details of the posting, I saw immediately what was going on because they posted the key that was found to to that allowed them to decrypt the SSL connection, and it was exactly. 10 hex characters. Well, a hex character represents four bits. So 10 of those is 40 bits. And those old timers of us oh may remember yeah. when, when 40 bits was the maximum length that, of encryption that was exportable from the United States. That's right. It was intentionally crip crippled. Yes. Encryption was considered a munition and so it was regulated by the State Department, and you couldn't export it from the U.S. So, so SSL could be forced to negotiate a symmetric key of only 40 bits. Intentionally now, crippled. Yes, exactly. And so remember that, that um, 32 bits is... 4 billion. 32 bits is, is 4 billion combinations. So we're adding only 8 bits to the 32 to get 40. Well, we know that 8 bits in a byte, that's 256. So it's going to be 256 times 4 billion, which is a big number, but it's 40 bits. I mean, we know that's no, no longer strong enough well and it wasn't then that was the whole point right correct even then you could put an if you put a bunch of machines on the problem and so what i liked about this is it highlighted something which is we've talked about the ssl protocol and all this fancy public key technology and certificates and certificate authorities and chains of 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 um uh, uh, certificate chains. Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. All of this. Well, all of that ends up generating a symmetric key, which is of a certain length, and that's actually used to encrypt the payload. So all that fancy protocol stuff is basically 
to authenticate the endpoints and, and allow them to negotiate a secret symmetric key. Well, 15 years ago, that was could be, in fact, it was you didn't you weren't limited necessarily, but if either endpoint could only support 40-bit SSL, then they would negotiate down to that. So back then, the result was a symmetric key, which was just too short. I mean, it arguably then should have been a minimum of 64, but it was deliberately crippled. So that meant that if anyone then captured traffic, then you could do an offline attack by by just guessing, brute forcing that 40-bit key until you decrypted the, pack, the, the contents of one of the packets, and then you'd have the contents of all of the packets. So... So it's it's one of the reasons why we really do need to future proof our technology. I mean, for example, we've talked about the this this notion of what's safe today may not be safe tomorrow. Of course, every, everyone talks about quantum computing and the idea that we're going to have suddenly have a huge jump in computing power. It's not clear how that's going to happen or when, but if if you were doing packet captures some like back then and you were you were capturing packets that were 40 bits encrypted you could certainly break 40 bit encryption using today's technology just in a blink i mean there'd just be no problem doing it at all but i but i like the idea also it's not something we talked about before which is that you know the the upshot of all of the fancy handshaking is a symmetric key and if that is not long enough. You can brute force attack it and, you know, you get the contents of, of the packets. So to answer Rob's question is to be very sure everyone understands 40-bit encryption is no longer in use, cannot be used. It's, you know, the, the thankfully, the laws changed in the U.S. that allow everyone to use much stronger encryption and SSL now does. Um, and again, even though it doesn't sound like 128 or 256 bits is that many more bits, oh, baby, I mean, when every single bit doubles and you double and double and double, you know, what, 256 compared to 40. So you're you're doubling uh, 216 times. That's really a lot of doubling. So you couldn't, even like the NSA couldn't crack at this point in in anything like a reasonable amount of time everyone i mean you ask any crypto person who's at state of the art they do not believe that 256 bit symmetric key encryption is crackable by anyone at all you know everyone says oh well yeah but you know there's back doors and all these things it's like well you know, the, we've gone over the AES algorithm. We did a podcast on it, exactly how it works. People with absolutely no agenda, a math, mathematicians and, and cryptographers who would love to put a feather in their cap by finding a weakness have studied it like crazy. They've used, they, they've used reduced strength versions to say, oh, well, if we, instead of doing 14 rounds of, of encryption, if we only do five, then, you know, there's some things we can see where the bits aren't really being scrambled as deeply as they need to be. And it's like, yeah, but the designers knew that. 
That's why there's 14 rounds because you very quickly lose all ability to track this. So, you know, everything we know says, you know, that that nobody can decrypt this if it's well enough encrypted. Good news. Yes. Fear not. We, you know, it's funny because these articles, you know, bloggers can write anything they want. Yeah. So these and 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 you know this guy's not a security expert. And he uh, said and he said, and he asked, you know, is this fud? Your right. answer is yes. Yeah. I mean, that's the history. And I think the history I would is, say it's intentional fud. It's just it's misguided. It's un, it, the guy doesn't know what he's ta- know what he's talking about. Right. But I did like it from from a historical per- perspective because yeah. it shows where we came from. But we get these questions. I'm sure you get them all the time from people who say, "I read an article that said, you know, uh, whatever, you know." Public key cryptography has been cracked, or WPA two has been cracked, and and you know usually it's yeah, but bad password or forty bit key, that kind of thing. Yeah, you listen to this show, you get the straight stuff. But that's why we answer these questions. Scott in upstate New York points out a security hole. He says you could drive a truck or fly a Predator UAV through. Steve and Leo, the people in the Pentagon should really listen to more security now. This was in the news. It turns out that the video feeds from a American UAVs. What is that? Unintended air, uh, unmanned aerial vehicle. Aerial unmanned aerial vehicle are sent unencrypted to the ground. Insurgents discover this and are using twenty six dollar off the shelf equipment to intercept the feeds and plan their operations around the locations of the drones. This flaw has been known since the nineties, but Pentagon officials assumed it wouldn't be exploited because hey. Those Afghans and Iraqis, they're stupid, right? This is a clear failure of the security through obscurity model. What do you think? Scott, a loyal security now listener. Well, a bunch of our listeners, as you might imagine, uh, posted questions about this, wanting uh, you know some, some commentary. And the, we're in a little bit of an information deficit, as one might imagine, because... I yeah, don't want to talk about this. The government is embarrassed. Yeah. Um, what... I did hear an interview from someone who sounded like he understood the equipment. And as I understand it, the problem is that there's a large network of ground-based receivers, which are more than a decade old. And Uh. the problem would be... While you could in, while you could trivially, I mean, this is a, a, a guess. It's digital. It's digital video because they're they're using a digital video um, satellite software. There's some software made by a Russian company who is also coincidentally not happy that their software, which you can purchase for for twenty five ninety nine, um, that their software is being used. The idea is their their software. Is I think it's called Sky Grabber or something. It's the intention is that that people who use satellite internet links are are vulnerable to having their satellite internet monitored because the encryption is not very good, and this stuff apparently decrypts this digital information if it's even encrypted and it may not even be encrypted it's just it's 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 what's necessary to essentially demodulate the digital data and and convert it back in into digital so it turns out that the the UAV planes are while they do have encrypted command and control technology so it is not possible for anyone to to intercept and and uh, take over the planes 
for whatever reason, they they emit unencrypted video, which is being received by these ground, very old, very inexpensive, low-technology ground-based receivers, which collect the video and then relay it back to Command Central, wherever that is. And I've actually heard, I don't know this at all for sure, I know that the UAVs are built by a company in San Diego, Southern California. I've heard that they're being flown by pilots also in San Diego. So, I mean, they're literally, we're talking remote control. These things that are flying over uh, Afghanistan and, and Pakistan are are being controlled from halfway around the world. I heard Las Vegas, but, I, you know, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Way, way far away. Yeah. Yeah. So, Here. so here's the problem is that they're, um, they're inexpensive. It's old technology. Um, but that's really also not an excuse because there's a new version, I think, called the Reaper, which the government has just commissioned and ordered from the same company that also has unencrypted video. So it really does seem to be a case of people just not paying attention to this and not thinking it's going to be a problem. What happened was that some some um, some Shiite terrorists were captured and their laptops were found to contain recorded video from the UAV overflights. And then the, that was, I think that was in 08. So, you know, more than a year ago, that was that happened, but nothing was done to change it. And the problem is the infrastructure that exists, the the equipment which is installed can't be upgraded. Sure, you could encrypt the feed on a UAV, which cost an amazing amount of money. And, and we know that, you know, a, putting even just a little symmetric cipher in there would be zero overhead. The problem is apparently the receiver needs to decrypt it. I guess it's unable to forward it encrypted back to home base. I mean, I, again, with there, we have no idea of all the specific details, but but it does seem to be the case that that for whatever reason, the existing infrastructure can't take encryption without the a huge reinvestment, which is much more than is in the budget right now. And what's really dumb is that the the various... Uh, people who are embarrassed are saying, oh, well, we really don't think it represents a big problem. It's like, uh, okay, except that, you know, for people who know the terrain, you know, the the people on the ground who who are our adversaries, they're able to look at these video feeds and know exactly where the, you know, the, the, the plane is flying over. So that seems to me a, to be a problem. It's an interesting story, isn't it? Yeah. Question whoops. four. Whoops. Chris in Texas worries a bit about the free SSL certificates you might have seen. Long-time listener, but can't seem to remember if you've covered this already. There's a company called Startcom Limited that gives away basic SSL certificates. Hey, that's cool. I'm just wondering if these certificates are safe to use. They're listed as a trusted authority in Firefox and IE and all the other browsers. Um, but free, what's the catch? Is there one? I've gone through the process of signing up in which they generate you a certificate signing request for authentication not a username, and validated my domain ownerships. Everything has seemed professional. No process has varied from other authorities I've used. What's your opinion on these guys? Your show's been part of my commute since the days of single digits. Look forward to my feeds every week. Thank you for all the wonderful information. Well, there have been other free certificate authorities in the past. Well, okay, so here's the deal. 
Um, Startcom is a good, little, reputable um, certificate provider. They do have their um, certificate authority certificate um, installed in all the major browsers. So if you look at the, 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 at, at, at the root certificates that are installed in IE, Startcom is there. And the same thing for Mozilla. So it is the case that their certificates will work, meaning that if someone were to use a free certificate from them for their server, then all the users who are using popular browsers would be able to establish SSL connections without any problem. Um, the only downside is if it were, for some reason, really important to trust this company, then a, a that, that is to trust your connection. A user that is a you know on a client on a browser might check the certificate chain and and think huh this certificate was signed by startcom never heard of them you know heard of verisign heard of godaddy um don't know who startcom is so remember that we're that implicit in this is is not only that we're using them for encryption but we're using them for authentication of the server and that's important in this era of dns spoofing and and man in the middle attacks and all that kind of stuff so so i would say to chris there's nothing wrong with these at all that if their if their root certificates were not installed in all browsers then you'd have a problem that some users of browsers that didn't have the startcom root certificate wouldn't be able to make a connection because the you know the the signer of the certificate that's being offered by the web server wouldn't be known to the browser, but it it is, so that's not a problem. The only issue would be that you know if a user was concerned about the reputation of who signed the website's certificate, stating that you know we verified all this. Startcom's um, uh, FAQ pages do talk about this and explain that, you know, they have a highly automated system which allows them to issue short-term, that is one-year, free certificates. Um, my guess is that their model is they're issuing certificates for a year that'll bring you back every year, and maybe you'll decide, hey, this has been working for a few years. I think I'm going to pay for a longer-length certificate where they will do a little more testing in order to justify the longer life of the cert. But um, uh, I, I think it looks like it's a fine solution. Great. Yeah, I mean, there have been a number of these uh, companies. I mentioned Thought, T-H-A-W-T-E, which was purchased, unfortunately, by Verisign. So Verisign. Stop, stop doing the freebies. But yep. uh, I've used uh, free certs for uh, email and stuff for uh, PGP, and I, I don't see anything wrong with that. It's, you know, no. It doesn't cost them that much to do a cert. Let's face it. Cost them nothing. It's all it's only the you know, the the, the bureaucratic side yeah. of verifying um, identities and domains and so forth. It's been my experience that free certs sometimes don't go through as many hoops to verify. Precisely. Know? Yeah. Anton Wersch in Tokyo, Japan has some great info about San Diego's SeaWorld fingerprinting at the entrance. Guess it's not just Disney. 
In late November, I was home for the holidays and went to SeaWorld in San Diego. After I had purchased my ticket, I found that the entrance to the park, they were electronically fingerprinting everyone as they entered. After listening to your podcast, this concerned me. Who was managing the fingerprinting data? What security measures did they have? What happened to all the data in case SeaWorld went under? I was instructed to a window where I could ask questions about the fingerprinting. The young person at the window assured me fingerprint is not stored anywhere. He showed me a paper that explained what their system was doing. The fingerprinting machine used the fingerprint to generate a number that was then mapped to the barcode of the entrance ticket. This allows SeaWorld to ensure that only one person is using an entrance ticket. If a person leaves the park and wants to re-enter, the fingerprinting machine should regenerate the same number, match the mapped barcode on the ticket. My concern, though, is that I just have to take their word on that, that that, that, that's what they're doing. I have no proof they're not sharing my fingerprint or storing it in their database. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. That does make sense. That's a reasonable way to use it. Actually, it's very cool. I like that a lot. I have several thoughts. One is... It's terrific that there is a window <laughs> where you could go and ask your questions and that they have a paper that they will show you that explains this. I mean, it it does tell me that that Anton, who listens to Security Now, is not the first person to feel a little, little sketchy about why SeaWorld wants his fingerprints. Right. Um, and... Their solution, I think, is very clever. Essentially, they're hashing his fingerprint. They're taking details, which are probably, hopefully, relatively static, and they're running it through a hash um, to essentially generate a digital signature. But as is true of all hashes, that's inherently a one-way function. That's what a hash is when we've talked about it. We've discussed hashing at length in the past. The idea being that you can take a document of any length or a blob of information, you run it through a hash, and it produces a um, a unique value for that document. Now, what what's special about that is that you cannot get the document from the value. So in this case, you cannot get someone's fingerprint from the number that that results from hashing the fingerprint. Yet, you can still use it for identification. That is, the same fingerprint should generate the same hash value. And what you would, what you would like to do is to limit the length of the hash. That is, if you took a fingerprint and hashed it to a really large multi-bit hash, then essentially you've got something as good as a fingerprint. That is to say... If no two people could ever be expected to have their fingerprints hash to the same value, then what you've got can still be used to uniquely identify you. So that's not what you want. What you want is a limited bit length hash. So, for example, imagine that the fingerprint were taken and hashed and only mm, 16 bits were kept. You could take any 16 bits out of the, you know, a 256-bit hash. So now what do you have? 16 bits, as we know, is 64K. So now you've turned a fingerprint into one of 64,000 possible values, meaning that, that many people on the planet 
will, because there's a lot more than 64,000 people. That is, everybody's fingerprint will produce a number randomly distributed, if it's a good hash function, between 0 and 65535. So it's no longer sufficient length to uniquely identify a person, yet it is sufficient to disqualify a person who's who's impersonating someone else. That is, the chance would be one in 65536, one in, in about 65,000, that, that an arbitrary imposter w- w- would have a fingerprint that hashed the same number. Now, I don't know that SeaWorld is using a truncated length hash. If they were, that would be very cool. They get the seal of <laughs> the security now seal of approval <laughs> for their technology. Um, but, you know, it's, it's nice that, that we're seeing evidence of, you know, this kind of responsibility because I think it, it's, it's entirely acceptable that, that, that the fingerprint itself is not being stored, but it's being turned into something which is a unique token that represents the person. That, that, uh, that's cool. And as for believing them, I absolutely would believe them. I would say they've got a window, they've got a paper. You know, it seems unlikely that they're going to produce all of that and explain it all and then have it not be true. If nothing else, it would open them to a lawsuit. Oh, gosh, yeah. You don't want to lie about that. Exactly. Yeah. Mac Schwartz, who's at the great Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, one of the excellent uh, tech schools in the, uh, the country, reminds us about blocking lookups with a host's file. He says, Steve, way back in episode 42, you toast told us about blocking unwanted sites with a host's file. From what you said in 227, our last episode, wouldn't blocking 318x.com with a host file entry now be a very good idea? If your host file blocked it, then 318.com would never get control and therefore it could not invoke chained malware. Thanks again to you and Leo for a wonderful program, which I enjoy without fail every single week. And congratulations on winning the Best Technology Podcast Award. You deserve it. Best wishes for the holidays and New Year, Marv. Um, many of our astute listeners mentioned that. So to all of them and to Marv, I wanted to say absolutely right. Remember that we talked about this and this is an ongoing threat and that it is, uh, as a consequence of that SQL injection, a huge number of sites have been infected with a little embedded iframe which contains a reference to 318x.com. So the first thing your browser that encounters one of these pages will do is attempt to to pull the contents from the URL contained in that in that little embedded frame, that little iframe. To do that, it has to look up the IP address of 318x.com. If you stick that in your host's file, the search stops right there. It, nothing will go any further, and you are safe. And Lord knows nothing good is ever going to be at 318x.com. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No reason to have that. <laughs> it's not like you're going to not be able to send email to your mom or anything for Christmas. So, <laughs> but as you pointed out, it's very likely to be 3189.com or whatever at some point. So it's only a limited of a limited value. Yes, and in fact, in the reporting, that, in the research that I did prior to last week, there are variants of that already in yeah. existence. So, again, blocking, but 
which is not to say that blocking 318x.com is not a, is, would be a bad idea. Putting it in the host file is a good idea. I wish I had suggested it last week. So I wanted to give everyone some props for saying, hey, that's a great place to, you know, for the host file. Absolutely yep, is. Yep, yep. Uh, another Ohio uh, resident, Matt, tells us of a new finger-based biometric technology, not fingerprints. Stephen Leo, I heard discussions in your podcast about banks wanting fingerprints and various retailers now requiring them. But where I work, we utilize a slightly different system. We sell memberships for various things. We used to give out cards with pictures on them, but it costs too much money and time to have card printers and to print them. So we have a new system that reads finger veins. From what I've seen, it works extremely well. They claim near 0% failure rate. So now we don't have membership cards. They just scan their finger. People don't have to worry that their fingerprints are on file, just their veins. And what are people going to really do if they know the layout of your finger veins? And he points us to m2sys.com. M, the number two, sys.com. They make the finger vein reader. Well, this is similar to the palm readers, right, that uh, you use at uh, level three or your, your, your... Provider well, uses. it's it's a different technology. The 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 palm readers are are measuring physical, so sort of external physical metrics. Um, they're like measuring the length of my fingers and the and and the the size of my hand and so forth. This is actually instead of a reflective technology, which is what a fingerprint uses. This is a transmissive technology. That is, you put your finger into this thing and it uses near infrared light so the infrared light shines through your finger from the from the back of your finger down to the front where there's an imaging array which which sees it and hemoglobin uh absorbs in the ir so as a consequence of that the imaging scanner can see the layout of your veins and this is actually a technology that's been known and used for years in a different way. Um, you, we've probably seen pictures of people in hospitals who have something slipped over their finger, which is able to take their pulse and measure their blood oxygen by um, by doing exactly the same sort of thing. So, um, and I think there are, there are even some things you can clip on, like an earlobe, in order to like keep track of pulse, because as 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 the veins throb. With our heartbeat, um, that changes the amount of IR, which is absorbed in the path through that chunk of flesh, whatever flesh it happens to be. Um, and it's very easy to, to get a pulse from that. These guys are going a little further and, and actually getting an image from it. So, you know, on their site, they talk about the advantages of this. For example, one of the problems with fingerprints is they being on the surface, they are prone to damage, you could get a, you could have a scar or cut yourself or burn yourself. You know, various things that affect the surface of your finger do not affect and do not change over time the layout of your veins in your finger, which they claim is every bit as unique as the print on the surface of your finger. So I just thought it was, you know, an interesting little tidbit. People may, um, if this catches on, see a different kind of technology in the future where they're sticking a finger into something rather than on something. The idea being that that IR light is, will be shined from the back of your finger through your finger um, to pick up a, a vein pattern. 
So Interesting. Okay. It, well, and it has the other it has the other um, feature that it it isn't something that you leave on you know uh, on water glasses in restaurants. Yeah, and things, that's a know? good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it doesn't have any value in criminal investigation or that kind of thing. Right from from a forensic standpoint, it's yeah. not going to help you, but it, but it certainly would. Um, it's the kind of thing you probably know is going on because you're having to, you know, put your, you know, stick your finger in a hole in order to get it read. Question eight, Brian Cooner in Akron, Ohio. Three Ohio's in a row. Steve, you did that on purpose. Just discovered that GRC's unreleased DNS benchmark fixed a long-standing problem. You haven't released the DNS benchmark. DNS. Nope. Still working on the documentation. Oh, okay. Because we. We have been able to download it and use it. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. it's done. It's completely finished. I just I just need to get all of the screens documented. Publicized it. Just want to let you know that I'm a Security Now listener. Just listened to 226. Heard you and Leo talk about the DNS benchmark utility. So I downloaded it and ran a test. My router DNS tested very low on performance. Hmm, even though I'm using OpenDNS, I've been having a problem for a while where I opened Firefox. And it has problems reopening about half the tabs I'd opened previously. After looking at the benchmark results, I changed my computer to directly point to OpenDNS, and quick testing has shown it solved my Firefox problem. I could kick myself for not trying that before, since I should have known better. Thank you for writing this utility and resolving a long-standing problem I've been having. Why would a router be slow? I guess just kind of a dumb router, I guess. Huh? That's exactly the problem. And, in fact, I'm at a loss, complete loss, to understand why routers have decided to take on the responsibility of proxying DNS on behalf of their lands. It's not like they're adding any value at all. Right. They're not ca they're not caching the, these these things barely have four bits to rub together. <laughs> I mean, they are, you know, they they are they're, they're are dumb. A, they're dumb an, little boxes. They're, they're an empty plastic box with yeah. nothing inside. And it's like, oh well, we're gonna, you know, we're help. gonna. I'd like to help. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna <laughs> offer DNS services to all the machines on the network. It's like, why? Do, Just do most routers do that or no? It seems to be uh, on the rise. It's a new thing. Older routers didn't. They would just pass through whatever right. whatever DNS servers the ISP upstream was giving them. Now, for whatever reason. They advertise themselves, their own gateway IP, as the, as the sole DNS for the network, which then requires that they field these DNS queries. And the problem with that is that there's some sophisticated logic that is employed by Internet-aware computers from the very dawn of time. Unix machines were on the Internet where you know, the, re the requirement was two DNS servers – the, 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 and, of course, then Windows and Macs and, and Linux machines, all Internet-aware systems, generally have pretty good logic. They will, they will recognize which DNS server has been working well and issue requests to that one. Then, if it seems to not respond, they'll try again. And if it still doesn't respond, then they'll send requests out to all the other DNS servers they know about. And you can actually register more than just two DNS servers. You can, if you use like the advanced configuration tab, at least in Windows, and I'm sure it's the case in, in Unix and Linux and probably is on the Mac, you're able to equip your machine with more backup DNS servers. In which case, right. 
It'll send parallel queries to everybody else it knows about. And the one that responds fastest then becomes that the moves to the head of, 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 of the list. And it'll be the one that the system uses. So it's very intelligent. I don't think any of that is going on in these these little routers that can't get out of their own way. You know, who knows what they're doing? I mean, they're apparently doing the least possible. And what we discovered, one of the reasons I've, I've ended up being so down on the routers imposing themselves is that I have a an also as yet unreleased, but also finished but not yet documented spoofability test, which is very cool. And the DNS benchmark is part of the release of a whole suite of dns things that i'm getting ready to do um it crashes these routers that is they get in the way and the i'm just doing regular dns things and we found about 10 or 11 so far that are completely crashed by this they by just by doing dns lookups they're like it's like get out of the way yeah. you're offering they're offering no value i do not understand why it's become so popular no one that i've spoken to has as you know even been able to offer a reason if if it were caching for example if if the router had some weight behind it and it was using a good upstream algorithm and for example providing caching services then you could argue that other machines on the network could you know when they right. want to go to google the router would know um, instead of them having to cache it themselves, but these things don't. They're they're just they're you know pitiful little empty boxes of plastic. So anyway, it seems like a. I'm not surprised that Brian found that getting his router out of the way helped him, and I thought it was worth sharing with our other listeners. Probably by the time we talk about how we're able to crash routers, nobody who listens to this podcast will still be using their router as a DNS server. I at least I can hope that because it seems like a really dumb thing to do. But it is the default configuration in many cases. Interesting. All right, long one. Take a deep breath. This is from uh, Ilari Kajasti, or Kajasti. I'm sure I'm mangling his name because it's in Finnish. You do a much better job than I would, Leo. I, Finnish is uh, often the, the the letters in the name have no relationship to the pronunciation. It has been my experience, and, and fortunately. Um, Elaine also receives this PDF, so she always spells everyone's name correctly, even if we mangle She's the pronunciation. Good at that. I'm going to say Ilari Kayasti, because I know J is Y. In, uh, it's almost a Y, Kayasti. In Finland, takes issue with the fingerprints and other biometric data as identification. He says, or she says, you've been talking a lot about fingerprint privacy on security now lately. I'm a very strong privacy advocate myself, member of the local EFF, as am I, and all that. But I can't help thinking there's something very odd in the talk about biometric data privacy. The problem is this. A water glass I handle at a restaurant, the door handle I touch when entering a store, the kiosk I use for ticketing for a bus, aren't these all valid places to surreptitiously pick up my fingerprint? No matter how hard I protect my precious index finger's unique in pattern, I'm essentially giving it out every day. Same extends to all biometric data. Well, not all. I mean, I, I don't know how you, people would get your iris, but... With technological advances, DNA will become very inexpensive to analyze, right? Iris patterns can be obtained, obtained from a distant photo. Oh, I didn't know that. And uh, so on. <laughs> By our simple existence, we are essentially continually broadcasting biometrics to the world. Considering biometrics is something that's supposed to be private, seems like looking at the whole issue upside down. I think we really need to start considering biometrics 
fingerprints, iris patterns, DNA, all of it, not as private, but rather as public data, safe to be broadcast even on one's own homepage. That way, we, society, could learn to use them reasonably as we'd stop considering the data itself private. Biometrics would still remain as valid use for identification for many purposes. There is still the hassle with reproducing biometrics, even if you have the data. Duplicating a fingerprint from an image isn't all that easy. And duplicating iris patterns or DNA is much more difficult, especially when using multiple biometrics combined and verifying the read event by measuring, say, body temperature and so on. Fooling the biometric readers can become quite a problem. It's a matter of balance, of course. Biometrics should only be used where the cost of counterfeiting is higher than the benefit. But the same goes for all security measures. Sure, it becomes easier to fool the readers with technological advancements, but the biometric readers will improve as well to counter that. However, keeping biometric data private will only become increasingly difficult. It's an uphill battle that should be abandoned. I'd be very, very interested in hearing your thoughts on this, Steve, as I really appreciate your thought-provoking insights into security matters. I've been listening for quite a while now, currently working my way through most of the Security Now archives. Truly an amazing resource. Thank you, Alari. That's a good point, isn't it, Steve? Yeah, he really, I mean, it, it is absolutely a good point. You know, we are... Uh, and, you know, the, the the other thing I was thinking about as he was, as I was listening to you talk, was um, voice print analysis. Sure. There's another example. I mean, you and I are literally broadcasting our voice all over the place. So if we were ever depending upon the the non reproducibility of our voice, uh, that would be a problem. Since there's you know an amazing amount of sample of our voice now. Um, and I like his point about the fact that it's not, it's not the knowledge of the biometric, it's its ability to produce it on demand. You know, for example, if uh, if the law enforcement needed a DNA sample, you know, they they don't accept one from an envelope from you. They say say ah, and they you know they swab the inside of your mouth. I presume, or at least that's what they do on the various shows that I've seen. Um, so they're getting a live, real sample from the person that they've identified as the sample is coming from. So you 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 know you're you have no ability to spoof the DNA that they're acquiring at that stage. So you know everything that he's said aside, am I going to post my ten fingerprints on my website? Uh, no. Um, it's Yes, it's the case that I'm leaving my fingerprints around, but all of the security that we use is is um, is you know shades of gray. It's you know you want to you want to control access to your DNA and to your fingerprints, and and now we know to to the vein prints inside our fingers um, to whatever extent possible. Even though, you know, SeaWorld is hashing a fingerprint, I'm glad that our listeners, I mean, I, I don't think it's wrong for our listeners to, to be a little skeptical. And I love it that, you know, they're, they're asking questions as clearly other people are saying, wait a minute, why do you want my fingerprints? I'm concerned about privacy. I don't want to be giving them out all over the place. I, I agree with him that, you know, spoofing them is a problem. But at the same time, I don't think there's any substantial cost to minimizing the to minimizing disclosure. I think uh, that's still a useful strategy. Yeah, yeah. 
Last question from Marco Silver in, uh, Silva in the uh, Madeira Islands, Portugal. It's wow. nowhere near, near Ohio. No, nowhere near Ohio for the last two. I love how, you know, just totally global our audience is. He wonders about uh, your unreleased, another unreleased program, the router crash test. And wonders if router configurations could be changed. Stephen Leo, I just ran the router crash test on your DNS website. Fortunately, my router didn't crash. But if I run this test on a router that does crash, could doing so change the configuration? You say that the crash never results in any permanent damage to the router or other equipment. Some routers reboot themselves and restore their service. Others hang and need to be powered out off for a moment and powered back on. He's just worried that... Uh, whether the test could accidentally change the router's configuration on a router that's crashed. I don't even know about this, by the way. <laughs> I'm behind. I'm, I'm working as hard as I can to catch up. What the heck is this? We will be doing, we'll be doing podcasts about this stuff as soon as I, as soon as I get all of the pieces uh, assembled. Um, the, what we discovered was that the, it was possible to crash routers. And... We then decided that we, meaning all the, the denizens who hang out in the GRC news groups and I, when we were working on this uh, about a year ago, actually. And th this all resulted from the uh, Kaminsky DNS spoofing stuff that was um, in early 08 or mid 08, I guess. Um, so we then determined well we had a bunch of users whose routers were crashing when we were developing the spoofability test so we figured out how to keep that from happening but then also what it was that they weren't liking and this is exactly what we we're talking about a second ago about a route the routers that are imposing themselves as dns servers that were unable to field valid dns queries and replies and so so I created a separate test. I made the normal spoofability test not typically crash routers and then created a router crash test because, as, as all of our listeners know, what starts out as a crash today is a remote takeover exploit tomorrow. And the concern is that it might be possible to send DNS replies at routers that are proxying and take them over remotely. So... Um, I mean, we have no evidence that that's the case, but that's the way all these things start. Sure. So, Anytime you got a crash, that's the potential. It, that's the potential. And essentially, we're able now to remotely crash people's routers that are imposing themselves wow. in the DNS lookup process. So to answer Marco's, pro, or to Mar Marco's question is, is router store their configurations in their firmware in non-volatile memory. We can't, we, since we're crashing the router, um, we don't know for sure that we're not altering the configuration, but it seems really a stretch that we would be, and we've never seen a, a situation where we have. But use so, at your own risk. Don't just go around crashing your router for fun. <laughs> <laughs> Correct, yeah. and I, I I do list the the ten or eleven routers that are known to be crashable at this point, so and every so often somebody reports another one. It's like okay, here we go. Wow. I mean, they're they're just you know these these things are inexpensive consumer right. appliances. They're they're and they're being pushed beyond I think what they should be doing by interposing themselves in DNS. They just they don't know they're not adding any value for doing so. 
Steve, always a pleasure. You make everything seem so clear, and today I wasn't too frightened. <laughs> Good. Which is nice. Good. Because it's the holidays, Leo. The holidays. We, don't want to, we don't want to frighten you and Santa Claus. Merry Christmas. Have a great Christmas uh, Eve and a safe trip to uh, see your mom. And we'll talk again uh, next week. For those who watch live, we're doing two shows next week because uh, the following week I'm going to be out of town at CES uh, covering the big consumer electronics show. And Steve is committed never to missing an episode. So two shows in our live taping uh, next week. We'll start early and go late. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Have a happy holiday. You too, Leo. Uh, happy Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. All that. And talk to you next week. See you next time. On Security Bye. Now. Security Now.